Science of Reading the Bible by Howard and William Hedricks. We're talking more interpretation today. Uh, as we <clears throat> are looking at the second part of biblical genres, more on that in just a second, but you'll recall that interpretation is the second step in our method for when we read and study the Bible. What, just to bring back to your minds, is the first step? Yeah, Greg? Observation. Observation, very good. And of course, the last step? Application, right. Observation, interpretation, application. Very good. We've spent a lot of time talking about observations. And uh, two weeks ago, we began to look a little bit more at the second step, interpretation. Once you actually know and see what is there in the text, then you ask, how can you use those things to get at the author's original purpose? How can you use what you see and what you notice to recreate the author's original purpose? And one of those considerations for how we interpret is biblical genre, the different types of literature that actually appear in the Bible. We talked about four types last week. Let's see if we remember what they were. I'll give you one. The first one that we talked about last week was narrative. What is narrative? Yeah, essentially just stories. We're talking about history, biography, and um, good examples would be uh, Book of Genesis or the Book of Luke. Those are definitely narratives. What were some of the other genres that we looked at? Yes, we looked at the parables. And the parables are like narratives in that they're stories, but these are fictional stories, and they help to illustrate a truth. Very good. What was another one? Well, we haven't talked about poetry yet, but yes, po Oh, that's okay. Um, but poetry is one that we mentioned last week. We're actually going to talk about poetry today. But we looked at narrative, we looked at parables. There were two other ones that we looked at last week. Yes. Exposition and law. Can you, um, Bill, can you remind us what exposition is? Yeah. It's basically an explanation, or sometimes we could even view it as an argument. There's a point that he wants to persuade his audience, or that he wants to clarify to, to his audience, and he does that through uh, a very logically laid out argument or explanation. And then the last one, law. We looked at law, the rules of the Old Testament. Now, for these different genres, we don't learn a whole new method of interpretation, but there are some nuances to the genres that we want to keep in mind. And I put them, I, in the lesson last week, I put uh, principles to remember. Big little thing that says, remember, do this, or be careful not to do this when you're looking at a certain genre. When we talk about narrative, there were two principles that are important to remember. What was one of those principles? When you're reading the stories about the different characters, the different people in the Bible, what's one thing you want to remember? Yeah, Steve. Exactly, very good. Just because a righteous person or a righteous group does something does not necessarily mean that you should do it too. Because God might have been doing something unique with that person or with that group. That's, uh, we didn't talk about it last week, but I think historically a lot of people looked at the statement from Jesus to the rich young ruler to go sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow him. And they say, oh, well, I should do that too. Got to get rid of all my goods. And that's why you had the, the monks and the other um, ascetics in the Middle Ages. But Jesus was doing something unique with him. And so we have to pay attention to that in that narrative. And also sometimes... Righteous characters are going to do things that are unwise or even sinful. 
that we saw when we looked at Rahab and Abraham, they both lie, even though they're righteous people. They're not called out in the narrative for their lies, but we don't just say, oh, well, God commended them. I guess he's not, not that worried about lying. No, we have to compare it to the rest of the scriptures. We want to confirm whether we need to imitate those specific things with the rest of the Bible. So that is very important. That's very good, Steve. That's something we want to remember with narrative. Don't necessarily imitate everything that a righteous person does. You've got to confirm it with the rest of the scriptures. What was the other thing that we want to remember when it comes to the stories in the Bible? We talked about this a little bit with Joseph and Bathsheba last week. Yeah, David and Bathsheba. Yeah, very good. And when the Bible doesn't give us enough to make a judgment call, don't try to make one because um, we, we can get astray with that. And we talked about Joseph and his dreams. Was he really sinning? Was he being prideful? Ah, there's not enough information to really tell. And even in the Bathsheba account where people say, ah, she's, she was trying to ensnare David from the beginning. Mm, do we really have enough evidence to say that? We want to be careful not to, not to say that something is there when there's not enough evidence for it. So remember those two things for narrative going forward. Switching over to parables, there's only one thing that I, I highlighted as important to keep in mind with parables. What is especially important when looking to interpret parables? Yes, context. Context is, is especially important because parables are essentially illustrations. And if you don't know the occasion for that illustration, then you'll have virtually no chance to figure out what it means. You don't have the context around it. Thankfully, one of the things that often appears in the context of parables makes it exceedingly much easier to interpret. And what normally or many times appears with parables in the context? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, certainly sometimes a point will be um, made right before the parable or sometimes right after the parable. Yes, we want to see what kind of doctrines he's presenting around the parable, and that's really helpful. But there's something even more direct with parables, and kind of related to what you're saying, Steve, that often appear with parables. If we think about the parable of the sower, we know exactly what all the different parts of that parable mean, right? And why is that? Yes, exactly. Jesus explains it to his disciples, which is really, really helpful. A lot of these figurative stories... We, we might be scratching our heads and be like, okay, got to look at all these different clues here. What could this mean? But if we just look a little bit further in the text, we'll see that Jesus actually explains it to his disciples. So we should take advantage of that. But even when no explanation appears, we do just as Steve was talking about. We'll look around the, the parable, see what was the doctrinal points that were being said here, or what was the occasion for this. You noticed, or last week we talked about that parable that Jesus tells about the... Um, the, the parable of the ten minas, and that's not given an explanation, but the occasion tells us a lot about that parable, and that's when Jesus is about to come into Jerusalem for the final time in what is often called his triumphal entry, and then he tells a parable that's related to a king receiving his kingdom and what his slaves were to do, what his servants were to do um, while they waited for him. So that tells us a lot about how we should interpret the parable. So good, narrative, parables, we're thinking about these principles that we want to continually remember. Let's think about exposition now. There's only one point that I highlighted for what we should remember with exposition. What is particularly helpful for that genre? Basically, 
Yes, very good, Bill. We want to pay close, particular attention to the structure, because remember, expositions are explanations or arguments. So we want to see how does the author group the ideas, because that's going to tell me what it is he actually is trying to persuade me of, what it is he's actually trying to explain. What is the order of his argument? That's going to tell me a lot about how I should understand it. So pay particular attention to the structure for exposition. And finally, law. Uh, it's, it's clear from the New Testament that Christians are not under the Old Testament law because it has been fulfilled, it has been completed by Jesus, and we are under the law of Christ. And yet, we get great benefit from studying the Old Testament law. And there are two things that we can look for in particular when looking at Old Testament law. What was one of those things that we talked about last week? Something that law can show us. Very good. The law is, uh, the laws tell us about God's character itself. We looked at some examples last week, but when, uh, just to point out another example, if you look at the, the instructions God gives about the high priestly garments or the instructions about the temple or the tabernacle, there's certain colors that keep on appearing red, blue, purple, and gold. And these were very beautiful colors, and these were expensive colors to, to, to actually make fabric of these colors. And that is a reflection. That wasn't just because God necessarily likes the color red, but those were beautiful colors, rich colors, and it was a reflection of the, the glory and beauty of God. And that appears there in the law. And we did also point out last week the strictness of how God says you ought to make something. When he gives the law and the different facets of it in the Old Testament, he says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. That again is a reflection of God's character. The holiness of God, the specialness, the, separate, uh, the, um, the separateness of God, and the fact that you can only come to him through the way that he ordained. So law shows us something about the unchanging character of God, but it also shows us something else that we can look for. What else? Yes, Judy. Very good. The law shows us pictures of New Testament realities. And we want to rely on the apostles to point this out for us because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they many times bring back things from the Old Testament like sacrifice or the Sabbath or um, the Passover or leaven. And they bring it back up in the New Testament and they say, look, this was actually a picture of Jesus. This is actually a picture of the new covenant right here in the law. Or sometimes they'll go back to the Old Testament understanding regarding how people were to obey a law as part of a New Testament exhortation. Let me give you an example of that from 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the situation in Corinth? Paul points out, he says, you've got this sin in your midst that you're not dealing with. And this is a particularly flagrant. Does anybody remember what was going on there in Corinth? That's right, his father's wife, some say is his mother-in-law. But a man had his father's wife. And the way that Paul addresses this, he makes an allusion to the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but let me read a verse to you. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says this, Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So to get the impact of what Paul is saying there, 
We need to understand the law. We need to understand what the Passover and leaven, or what God said for the Israelites to do regarding leaven during the Passover. When Paul says, clean out the old leaven, just how strict was God about leaven relating to Passover? Because that's going to inform what Paul is saying about the church's sanctification regarding this sinning member. So this is another reason, again, why we want to look at the Old Testament law, even though we're not under it, as uh, New Testament believers, it does reflect the character of God, and it does also, when re referred to in the New Testament, give us pictures of those New Testament realities. All right, good. So we've done our review of what we looked at last week. There are three other main genres in the Bible that I want to look at with you. We're just going to look at two today, because I want to give um, prophecy a little bit more time. And uh, we'll also talk about some other things related to interpretation next week, like dealing with figurative language, and if we have time, some of the pitfalls of interpretation, that is, some of the errors that we can make. But today, I do want to talk to you about two genres, poetry and wisdom literature. And again, next week, we'll, we'll hit the last one. We're going to get some background information on each, just like we have for the other genres, learn a few principles to remember based on the nuances of those genres, and then see those principles in action based on uh, different passages of the Bible. Let's pray before we dive into that. <clears throat> oh, holy God, Lord, as I, as I think about this opportunity to, to teach once again, I pray, Lord, that you, would, that you would speak and that you would give me the ability to be accurate and to be clear. Lord, I recognize the heavy responsibility to speak for you and to speak about your word. So God, I pray that, that you would be with me and that you'd give me the words to say and that you would be with this congregation, Lord, as they listen and help us to understand. Enhance the, the way that we read the Bible so that we can recapture what it is that you wanted to say to us and that it would change us and that it would fill us with such great joy, Lord, as we discover more about you. I pray this in your name. Amen. So the first uh, genre to talk about today is poetry. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you like poetry. I love poetry. I studied um, poetry a good deal as, a, as an English major, as uh, different literatures that I looked at. I have a great affinity for it. I want to take a, a good amount of time to talk about it with you. But you're saying, oh, no, poetry. Just remember that God loves poetry, too, because it's in the Bible. <clears throat> Uh, if you do get confused at all when we're talking about poetry today, be sure to raise your hand because I want to make sure that everything I'm talking about is clear. We've all seen poetry before, likely, English poetry. And it is, in terms of genres differentiating it from other types, it is a more musical genre. People who write in poetry are paying particular attention to the sound of their writing, to the rhythm of their writing. Where do we see examples of poetry in the Bible. Yeah, Amy. Yeah, Psalms, as, uh, as it makes sense, as they are songs, they would have that musical quality, so they would be poetry. Very good. Where else? Amy again. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if we can say the whole thing is poetry, but certainly there are poetic sections. And there are a lot of Old Testament books that have sections of poetry. Even narratives like Exodus will have a song in it. Or a book that we would consider a book of prophecy has a big section of poetry in it. Hebrew poetry, the, the, the poetry that appears in the Bible, appears in a lot of it. And all, within other genres, and some books are just dedicated to poetry, things like Song of Solomon, the Psalms, the Proverbs, they're all examples of poetry. And the translators help us a little bit in identifying poetry because if you come to a poetic section in the Bible, it's usually written differently. It, it doesn't just go in the paragraphs. The lines are broken up. You can see it kind of offset like you would see a poem, say, in a literature textbook with the different lines uh, broken off from one another. So when you see that, you should recognize you're probably looking at poetry. Now, I said that poetry has a lot to do with sound. But you may notice that when you read the poetry in the Bible, it seems kind of flat when it comes to the sound. You don't see rhyme. You don't really hear much alliteration or repetition of consonant or vowel sounds. Why do you think that is? Yes, it has to do with the translation, right? If you've ever, ever, ever studied a poetry that was translated from another language into English, you recognize that it just doesn't sound quite the same. And that's because of the, the difficulties of translation. You want to be faithful to the meaning, but how can you do that while also being faithful to the sound if the words don't sound the same in each language? So because we want to make sure we don't lose the meaning, we do... In, at least in the English translation, don't get to appreciate the sound as much of the Hebrew poetry. Recognize that it is there, and when we get in touch with the resources that allow us to see the Hebrew or to hear the Hebrew, then we're going to be able to appreciate that a little bit more. That being said, there are things about Hebrew poetry that even in English we can appreciate. Hebrew poetry, like English poetry, uses a lot of figurative language, it's very uh, emotional, often. But one of the most uh, prominent aspects of Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. Parallelism. And if you've ever read the poetry, you'll probably understand quickly what I'm talking about. Because it seems awfully repetitious. I think uh, Amy uh, said that earlier. When you read through a poem, it sounds like they keep saying the same things, but just in different ways. This is done on purpose. This was not that they were running out of things to say, but this was considered aesthetically pleasing. You wanted to represent truths in a repetitious way using this idea of parallelism. Let me just show you a quick example. I actually have it written up there from Proverbs. Proverbs 10.2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. If you think about these two lines, do you see how parallel they are. It's like the first line, or it, let me say this, the second line says essentially the same idea as the first, just in a different way. The first line speaks about the vanity of sin and pursuing it. It does not profit. But the second line um, essentially says the same thing in the opposite way. Pursuing sin doesn't profit, but pursuing righteousness does profit. It even delivers from death. This is parallelism in action. Now you might be saying to yourselves, mm, these, he these Hebrews are weird. Uh, that doesn't sound poetic to me at all. Uh, actually, we have parallelism in our own language. It's in our own poetry, it's in our own music, and it's even in some slogans and memorable quotes. 
um, let me just give you a few examples. You may have heard this before. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what? But what you can do for your country. Notice how parallel that statement is. There isn't rhyme in it, but there is some repetition of words, and the ideas are very similar. It's almost like the same idea with a slight, uh, with slight change between those two, the two parts of that statement. Or how about this? At Meineke, you won't pay a lot, but what? You'll get a lot, I guarantee it. There's some parallelism there. Or you might not recognize this quote as readily, but this is another famous statement. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Essentially, Churchill there is saying the same thing in each one of those lines. But the parallelism is, uh, is done on purpose. So before we dismiss the Hebrews and their parallelism, we actually use it too. And think about it with me. Why do we use it? Or why did they use it? Yes, that's one, certainly one reason. Parallelism allows you to give extra emphasis. This is why we often hear, uh, hear parallelism in speeches. Uh, the president or somebody else might say, the Americans are not cowards, the Americans are very brave people. And it's the same thing, but allows you to put some extra emphasis on something. And so, the Hebrews were doing that too. Why else is parallelism beneficial? Yeah, Greg. Yes, excellent. Parallelism is quite memorable. There's something about our brains that, that likes to have that, that repetition of ideas, and it allows it to stick in our brains. That's why many memorable quotes feature parallelism. Why do you think the idea of remembering things would be particularly important for Hebrew poetry? Yeah, Yolanda. Yes, yes, very good. Remember, their situation is not quite like the situation that we have today where you can just go get your Bible or you can go buy a Bible if you don't have one or you can download a Bible. There were some copies of the scriptures, but not everybody had one. So you had to rely on other people speaking the Bible to you. And if they were going to do that, you wanted to remember it. So good portions of the Old Testament have been written, I would argue, with that in mind to be memorable, especially when you look at things like Proverbs, these bits of wisdom. He wanted you to remember it, so it was written in a way that was helpful for you to remember. So we do see parallelism to, that does those two things. So it's great. Pay attention to parallelism. It was used by God for a specific purpose. Now, parallelism does appear a couple of different ways. Or are you going to say something, Greg? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. We'll actually come back to the idea in just a little bit. Parallelism is really, really helpful. It does appear a couple of different ways. And I just want to briefly introduce these to you. You don't necessarily in your own Bible study have to say, oh, is this this type of parallelism or is this, this that type of parallelism? I think you can still benefit even if you can't identify the specific type. But I do want to introduce them to you so that you are aware of them. Three main types of parallelism that we see in Hebrew poetry. 
I have them written for you there on the slide. Uh, I'll introduce them to you and, and then I'll give a little bit of explanation. First, we have repetition with variation. One of the types of parallelism you will see is repetition with variation. And it's exactly what it sounds like. The idea of the second line of poetry between two lines, or it could be between sections, the idea of the second line of poetry repeats something from the first line but just uses some slightly different words. A good example of this actually is in Job. So open your Bibles and go to Job chapter 41. Job 41, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. So here's some parallelism here. I'll read it for you. Oh, by the way, context. This is God talking to Job. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? This is repetition with variation in action. These lines all essentially say the same thing. What idea is repeated in these four lines? Yeah. Well, what's the question that he's using to point that out to Job? Yes, very good. Can you capture or can you control Leviathan? He just says it a couple different ways. Can you use a rope? Can you put this thing in his nose? Can you get his tongue? That's repetition with variation. A couple different words, but really it's the exact same idea in each one of the lines. Uh, I'll give you another example in just a second, but a little side note here. One of the other great things about parallelism in, uh, in, the, in the Bible is that it's very vivid. It, we get a pretty good picture of somebody trying to catch Leviathan because we get it from a couple of different angles in this section. We've got this fish hook or press down his tongue or this rope in his nose. It's almost like a panoramic view of a scene. I really like that about parallelism. It's almost like you get a three-dimensional picture of a, of a subject. Anyways, let's go to another example of repetition with variation just to get this clear in your minds. Turn to Psalms chapter 33. Psalm 33 verse 2. Simple example here, but Psalm 33.2 says, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. So again, you see that this is almost the exact same statement with slight differences. One says praise, the other says uh, sing for joy. Oh, I'm sorry, I uh, missed my verse there. One says give thanks, the other one says sing praises. And one says a lyre, and one says a harp with ten strings. Now technically a Apparently, a lyre and a harp of ten strings were different instruments, but it's really, really close. And it's the same idea in those two lines. So this is one type of parallelism, repetition with variation. And the second type that I have listed up, up here is negation. And again, this is what it sounds like. Uh, it's the idea of contrast. One line will say something, and then the second line will say um, something that's like the opposite of the first. Not a contradiction, it's not going to invalidate the first, but it's going to present the same truth but from an opposite angle. Let me show you an example of this from Proverbs chapter 5. Go to Proverbs 5 and we'll look at verses 3 and 4. Proverbs 5 
Proverbs 5, 3 and 4 says this. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now you may notice here, we actually have layers of parallelism. It's like verse 3 and verse 4 have parallelism within the verses, essentially repetition with variation there. But between the two verses, we see another type of parallelism, this time negation. What is the contrast presented between verses 3 and 4? Mm-hmm. That's really good. We do see the contrast between taste. What else? Yeah, Lena. Yeah, it's very good, right? There's a contrast between what, um, what appears or what seems, and then there's a contrast between what is. And that is, what is the adulteress really? She seems sweet, the texture seems smooth, but in the end, you realize that it's bitter and it's sharp. There's a, there's a direct contrast there, and they're placed next to each other in a parallel fashion. This is a negation. This is another type of parallelism that is uh, part of Hebrew poetry. Again, notice the vivid pictures here. Very strong imagery in Hebrew poetry. Let me give you another example of negation, also in Proverbs. Turn over to chapter 10. Proverbs 10, 17. Proverbs 10, 17 says this. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. So just two lines here. What's the contrast? We have an opposite presented here. Very good. We have the one who heeds instruction and the one who doesn't. The one who ignores reproof and the one who heeds reproof. Very good. What's the result of those two different courses of action? Yeah, and it uses a metaphor to describe it. What's the metaphor? Say that again, Alan. That's right. It's the idea of a Yeah, yeah. The, he uses the idea of this path. He says, if you heed instruction, it's like you're on the path of life, the path to life, or the path of life. But if you ignore reproof, you've left the path. You're no longer on the path. So again, we see the parallel ideas, even though the second line presents an opposite, uh, an opposite perspective to the first. With me so far? So we have repetition with variation. We have negation. And the third type, which may seem the least parallel, but does appear a lot in the, the Hebrew poetry, is elaboration. Here, you, the second line adds information to the first. Whatever the first line presents, the second one expands on it with new information. Let me show you some examples of this. Turn to Isaiah, some poetry in this prophecy book. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, 9. Isaiah 1.9 says this. 
Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Quickly, look at those last two lines. What type of parallelism is that? Repetition with variation, right? Changes the word from Sodom to Gomorrah, but again, it's the same idea expressed in both of those lines, almost the exact same. But within these four lines, we also see an example of elaboration. What information is given to us in the first two lines? Say that again. That's right. And this is kind of presented like a conditional statement. Uh, if the Lord hadn't kept us alive, if the Lord had not left a few survivors, unless he had done this, and then we get the completion of that statement, we get more information in the next two lines, what would have been the result? Exactly. The same as Sodom and Gomorrah where there was just utter destruction, complete ruin. Unless God had done this, we would have been totally ruined. This is that third type of parallelism, elaboration. One more example. Go back to Psalms, please. Psalm 33, 1. Uh, I'm not sure if I said this already, but sometimes there's a little bit of overlap between these. If you're trying to identify something, you say, oh, that's negation. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, that's elaboration. See, there's some new information. Uh, I think there's a little bit of overlap sometimes, so don't get, don't get too crazy about that. <clears throat> Psalm 33.1. Here's our last example here of the different types. Psalm 33.1 says, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Again, we have elaboration on display here. What's the information presented in the first line? Yeah, there's a command here. Sing for joy to the Lord. Righteous ones, sing for joy to the Lord. But there's new information added to this idea in the second line. What's the new information? Yeah, it makes sense for you to do so. It's totally fitting for you to do so. Praise is becoming to the upright. Do it because it makes sense to do it. That makes sense for you to do that as a righteous person. It's totally fitting for you to do that. So again, here's the idea of elaboration. New or the first idea gets some extra information about it, some new information in the second line, second section. Okay, so those are the three types. Now you might be asking yourself, all right, this is really interesting, Dave. Learning a lot about parallelism here, but how is it actually going to help me interpret? How is it going to actually help me in my own study? Well, I'm glad you asked because there are two principles I want us to remember regarding using parallelism in understanding Hebrew poetry. The first thing to remember is use parallelism to identify what it is the author emphasizes. Use parallelism, use parallelism to figure out what idea the author is emphasizing in a section. We noted this is one of the things that parallelism excels at doing. It allows you to bring extra emphasis to something. And this can be between a few verses, or it can be in a longer section. Let's take a look back. You can turn there if you want. Back to Proverbs 5, verses 3 and 4. That's the one about the adulteress. What truth about the adulteress is emphasized through the parallelism in those verses? Not 
That's right. It's all about the deception of the adulteress, right? Seems really good. But actually, it's the opposite of good. It's bitter tasting, and it's even deadly. That truth is emphasized through the use of parallelism, and if we look at the parallelism, we can see it come out even more clearly. Notice that later on in Proverbs 5, we do see the contrast of what faithful married love is like. It's the opposite of what the adulteress seems, or it's the opposite of what the adulteress is. Another great example of how parallelism produces emphasis and how we can use that comes from Jonah. I really like this passage. Go to Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 and 7. For some reason, Jonah is that book of the Bible I always have a hard time finding. There it is. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2. Just to recreate the context here. Probably remember the story of Jonah. He, went to, he was told to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He tried to sail somewhere else, but God sent a storm. People were wondering why the storm was happening. Eventually, they figured out it was Jonah. And he says, the only way the storm is going to go away or the way that you're going to survive is you've got to throw me overboard. So they said, okay, I guess we'll do that. They throw him into the water and it begins to sink. But he's swallowed by a fish. In chapter 2, we get a prayer from Jonah. And I'm just going to highlight a section of the prayer. It's recorded as Hebrew poetry. Now let's look at verses 5 to 7. And I'm going to read it kind of dramatically because I think it is dramatic. <clears throat> Verse 5. Water encompass me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains, the earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Okay, this is a cool section. Do you notice any parallelism in these verses? Well, he doesn't actually refer to the fish, but certainly very descriptive about his descending into the water, right? Yeah, yeah, very descriptive. We should get that. I, I just see, you see my little picture here. Uh, it doesn't show up too well because of the light in the room, but you can just imagine Jonah going down and you're just seeing the... the the surface of the water getting further and further away, and he's looking at the dark depths beneath him, and little creatures going by. And I guess, I don't know how the seaweed got to him, but I guess he must have gone down pretty far. So you get that picture, and by keep saying that, what idea is he emphasizing about himself? Yeah, that's the total despair. It says, I was lost. I'm just going down, 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 down. The waters just kept going on me and on me. And there's no hope. But there's other parallelism here in the passage, right? There's not just that repetition of his, of his uh, dismal situation, but what else appears? Yeah, we see some negation. Where do we see that, Beth? Very good. Now, clue word, but. But you have brought up my life. And I, I, for some reason, in my mind, 
I get that picture of when you inflate something underneath the water and just start shooting towards the surface. That's what I imagine Jonah is kind of thinking about. It's just like, I was going down and now I'm coming up. Brought up my life from the pit. And then he says that a couple of different ways again. The repetition. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. It's like he was getting farther and farther away and now he's going back closer and closer to the Lord. This is uh, parallelism doing its thing. That is emphasizing. We have Jonah's utter despair and ruin, but then, boom, the hope. The hope that God gave him. The hope that God would remember him and, re and listen to his prayer. That's what parallelism can do. It emphasizes those truths. So, when you read through Hebrew poetry, remember that. Remember, think about how parallelism is emphasizing certain ideas as you read through. That's one thing I want you to remember. The second thing, and this goes back to something Greg mentioned earlier, the second thing we want to remember is that we want to use parallelism to see how seemingly unrelated parts of the Hebrew poetry fit together. I'll say that a different way. Use parallelism to flesh out ideas that seem incomplete in a section of parallelism. If that's still not clear, I think it'll be clear once we look at an example. Look at Proverbs 13, 5. Proverbs 13, 5. As you turn there, I'll try and explain it in another way. Sometimes the first line and the second line in a group of Hebrew poetry, they don't seem related. And you say, uh, you were talking about this in the first line, and the second line seems like it's talking about something totally different. But if we see that they're supposed to be parallel, then we can say, well, the information from the second line has got to say something about the first. And whatever's in the first line has got to say something about the second line. And so we can take the pieces to inform what each line is fully about. Here's an example from Proverbs 13.5. Let's double check the right verse. Okay. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Okay. If we're just looking at the ideas presented, we might say, hmm, that doesn't, doesn't seem particularly parallel. But we have a clue. We have a clue as to what type of parallelism ought to appear here. What type? Negation, right? And how do you know that, Emma? But, but, that contrasting word, that means that we're going to have a contrast, we're going to have an opposite between the first and second lines. So if we know there's supposed to be a contrast, let's see how we can use each line to help inform, uh, to fully inform each one. <clears throat> if, according to line one, the righteous man hates falsehood, and the second line ought to contrast the first, and it says something about the wicked man. What is the wicked man's view towards falsehood? It's got to be something like approval. Can't, didn't know who actually said that, but yeah. The righteous man hates it, and he's different than the wicked man. And that means the wicked man must approve of it or use it, or love it. Because there has to be a, a contrast here. There has to be a negation. And if the wicked man, because he likes falsehood, or because he uses falsehood, acts disgustingly and shamefully, if the righteous man is opposite from the wicked man, what do we know about how the righteous man acts? Say that again. Yeah, the righteous man acts, um, acts honorably and not disgustingly. See the idea here? 
even though these two ideas didn't seem particularly opposite at first, we can say, well, they are opposite according to this clue word. So that falsehood that the righteous man hates and the wicked man produces disgusting and shameful actions. That falsehood is connected to the disgusting and shameful actions. Whereas the righteous man, because he hates falsehood, he's not going to be acting disgustingly and shamefully. This is what I mean by using parallelism to fill out things that don't seem completely related at first. And just as a side note, we can understand how falsehood and disgusting actions are associated. If you do something shameful and you get caught or there's somebody who's trying to ask about it, you're going you're to want to lie about it. But, and also, if you are a liar, that sin often isn't going to just stay in that part of your life. You're going to be attracted to other sinful things, other shameful things. And in contrast, the righteous man, if he hates falsehood, he's going to hate those other things that are shameful and disgusting too. This is what I'm talking about. Let me show you this in a kind of larger sense in uh, another passage, this time in the Psalms. Psalm 19, we'll look at the first part of that. Look at, turn over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're looking at verses 1 to 6 here. Okay, Psalm 19, 1 to 6. I'll go ahead and read it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he's placed a tent for the sun, which is, as a bridegroom, coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, there's a lot of parallelism here, but we won't try and explore all of it. In reading this section, it, you may have thought that one part doesn't seem completely related to the others. Why this extended treatment about the sun? Okay, yes, the sun is part of creation. It's part of the heavens that verse 1 begins to talk about, but does the author merely just want to point out how great the sun is? How, uh, its, its glory is part of creation? Well, let's take a look at the parallelism here. We can help answer that question a little bit. Look at verses 1 and 2. What is the idea emphasized by the author. Glory of God through what? Can you just explain that a little bit more, Greg? So what are the heavens actually doing? Yeah, and what is that thing that they're telling? No, it is. It is. No, no, I, I wasn't saying that, that part was that that part was incorrect. <coughs> yeah, you're you're fine. <coughs> yeah, the heavens tell the glory of God. They actually reveal the glory of God. Creation, the heavens does that. That's what he's emphasizing in verses one and two. What about verses 3 and 4? 
What's the idea emphasized there? Say that, Alan. Yeah, and verse 3, yeah, they, it, the, um, when verse 1 and 2 talks about creation telling or um, speaking of the glory of God, verse 3 clarifies that in terms of that telling, what don't you hear? That's right, there aren't audible words. You don't actually hear the heavens saying things to you. And yet, verse 4 says, they do say things to the point that uh, how much the world knows about it. The whole world, right? Verse 4. Um, almost lost it there. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. There's no place not covered by their speech. Even though they're not using audible words, creation and the way it reveals the glory of God has reached every place on earth. What do you mean by that? I think so. I think it, it includes that and goes beyond that. All the things that creation says about, or that creation shows us about God, is reached every place, whether they've scientifically discovered it or whether it's a particular scientific property or not. I think the, the verses are definitely emphasizing that. Now, with this in mind, let's take a look at verses 4 to 6 again. Because, or, and let's ask this question. Is there something parallel about what we just realized and the sun as it's presented in those last three verses? Okay, yes, the, the sun is always there. And it rises and it sets. What else? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, I think that's definitely fair to say. It is one piece of the creation that is revealing, but there's something particularly um, pointed out to us about the sun that parallels something that we've heard. Yeah, Brian. The last part of verse 6 says, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You see this parallel here? This is an excellent analogy, not just an example, but an analogy of what he just mentioned in verses 1 to 4. The sun, it's, it affects everything on earth. Its heat reaches every place. And even the verses before emphasize this universal notion of the, the sun. Verses 5 and 6, or verse 6 says, its rising is from one end and its circuit to the other. It's got the whole thing under its gaze, under its rays. This is a picture of the idea that you can't escape the message of God through his creation. Just like you can't escape the effect of the sun. Yeah, you can shut out its light, but you're still going to experience the benefits of its heat or the, um, the consequences of its heat. You can shut yourself in a cave, but without the sun, the earth would freeze. So you're still, you're still aware of that sun. And you would not have any food if, uh, if you didn't have the sun because everything is eventually goes back to plants, which are reliant on the sun. 
So this shows us that this analogy, this parallel analogy using the sun goes back to the truths emphasized in the beginning of this song. And of course, this goes back to a verse used in the New Testament about how creation reveals God, right? Can anybody think of what I'm talking about? Yeah, Rob. Say that last part again. That's right, right. Romans 1 actually is saying the same thing that the Psalms are saying here. Uh, let me read the verse to you. Romans 1, 19 to 20. It says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made, so that they are without excuse. And it's interesting, Rob, that you use the term general revelation because when, because we have the general revelation, where should it drive us? What should we seek out because we see the general revelation? A special revelation, right? And we won't explore it, but notice the next place that Psalm 19 goes. To the word of God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So we're seeing these, these cool things here. And we use parallelism to help us. And what seemed like a kind of unrelated section, or maybe not fully, un or not fully related, but we see that that parallelism was actually being done purposefully to use the sun as a comparison of what he was just talking about. Okay, so remember these two concepts. Hebrew poetry is really rich. Parallelism appears through much of it. Remember, use parallelism, parallelism to figure out what the author is emphasizing, and also, use parallelism to fill out what seem like unrelated sections of Hebrew poetry. Use one section or one line to inform what the first section or the other line was talking about. Questions or comments before we move on? Yes, Steve. Verse 4, I think you can do it all. But verse 4 is actually quoted by Apostle Paul. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Ah, good observation, Steve. <clears throat> Any other questions or comments? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, I think that's one thing that hopefully that we're all seeing based on the Sunday School series, that real profitable, real enjoyable Bible study takes time. If you're just rushing through to get that Bible reading done, as we're tempted to do, you're not going to get the benefit. 
And you'll go through a, a passage like some of the ones we've looked at and you say, hmm, I, I don't really see how that fits. Oh well, just keep going to the next section. So yeah, time really gives us benefit when we study. Speaking of time, we're a little short on time, so let me keep moving to the next, the next thing. Briefly, let me talk about a subset of Hebrew poetry known as wisdom literature. <clears throat> wisdom literature. Now you may have heard this term before. All the books of the Bible are inspired by God and they all have the wisdom of God apparent in them, but there are certain books that fall into the category of wisdom literature. Anybody know which ones? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and Psalms is included in there traditionally as well. In many of these books, you have a similar setup. They're giving you advice about wise living. The author usually is an older, wiser veteran, or the speaker rather, and he's sharing his insight with a younger, inexperienced listener. It's usually the setup. Now, in terms of giving you principles to remember, I want to focus on the book of Proverbs, because Proverbs is kind of unique. We know what Proverbs are. Proverbs are statements that, short, memorable statements that say something true about life. And we know that there are Proverbs even outside the Bible. Think about Proverbs, if we think about some of the ones that we have in, in our culture, haste makes waste, early bird gets the worm, better safe than sorry, etc. Are they always true? No, they're not. It doesn't mean that they're not useful or that they're not generally true, but they are not absolutely true all the time. There are exceptions. It's similar with the Proverbs in the Bible. Even though the Word of God is perfect and inerrant, we do need to remember two principles when it comes to understanding the Proverbs. And one is, many times Proverbs will give you general life principles, which are absolutely true. However, those principles do allow for some exceptions. First thing to remember is that Proverbs do give you general life principles rather than absolute declarations sometimes. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, verse 17. Proverbs 21, 17 says this, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Now this is the inspired word of God, but is this always true? I think we can readily say, no, it's not. Generally, yes. Most of the times, yes. But there are some exceptions. Maybe somebody who does live for pleasure only is in a certain situation where he doesn't become poor. Maybe he has other family members that are supporting him so he doesn't have to worry about work. And so he just lives his lifestyle and never becomes poor, even though it's a totally indulgent lifestyle. And there are some on the opposite side who work really hard, discipline themselves, they don't indulge in luxuries, and yet they remain poor. Does that contradict this verse then? Is this verse untrue? Of course not. Generally, this is true. You love pleasure, you indulge in luxuries all the time, you're probably going to end up like the prodigal from the New Testament who spent all his wealth on frivolities. So this is an example of that principle of Proverbs that give life principles that are generally true but do have exceptions. Just, I'll mention another example to you. We won't take too much time to look at it, but Proverbs 10.19 is another example of this concept when it says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. 
Now, it's funny, my dad actually used to quote this verse to us as kids growing up a lot. If we were talking a lot and being very noisy, he says, oh, where words are many, sin is not absent. But of course, just because you're talking a lot does not automatically mean that you're sinning. <clears throat> or if you're a particularly talkative person or you're having a long conversation, you shouldn't be like, oh no, oh no, I'm talking too much. I'm probably sinning. There is a principle here. People who do talk a lot oftentimes are not restraining their lips. They're not controlling their speech. And that is how sin slips in. But just because you're talking a lot does not automatically mean that you're sinning. If that were the case, teachers and pastors would be in a lot of trouble. So remember this principle. Briefly, let me just say one other thing. Remember that Proverbs give sometimes principles that are not absolute, but they are generally true. Other times they do give absolute principles. But also, Proverbs often tell you how life is, but they don't often, or sometimes they don't tell you what you should do. They don't actually fill in for you what you should do. The one that I just mentioned to you, he restrains his lips as wise. Yeah, it gives you an idea of what you ought to do. Control your mouth. Have self-control over what you say. But sometimes we don't get that, and we're going to need to fill in. We're going to have to think about it a little bit before we can see how we can apply that proverb. Let me give you one example. Proverbs 18.11. Turn over there. should be close by. Proverbs 18.11. A rich man's wealth... This is what the verse says. A rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Now there's a true principle here that we can readily grasp. Wealth, especially if you're a rich person, can do a lot of things for you. It can make you, in a sense, secure. You've got a problem with your car? You can use money. You can use wealth to repair that car or to um, get a new car. But we also see in the second verse something that should give us a little bit of pause about wealth. Not the second verse, the second part of this, uh, this verse. What do we also see about wealth for the rich man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan and Lana giving good insights here. It's that second verse tells us it's a high wall in his mind, in his imagination, not necessarily in reality. Yes, wealth does have some practical things it can do for us, but if you're looking to it as a safety, remember that it's in your imagination. With this in mind, <clears throat> oh, and just real quickly, good example of that New Testament, the rich fool who says, eh, "I've got a lot of stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry," and God says. Tonight, your life is going to be demanded of you. There's false security right there. But what do we do then? The verse doesn't tell us how we should react. We have to think about it a little bit. How ought we to react to these principles that, yes, um, rich people rely on their wealth for security, even if it's in their imagination? How ought we to react? Yeah, Brian. Yes? Uh, let's see. Proverbs 18.10. I was looking at 19. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> we use wealth. And yes, it's wise to save and do things like that. But your security ought not to be in wealth. It ought to be in the Lord. 
And even if it doesn't say that here, we can see, I don't want my security to be in something imaginary. I want it to be in something real, something that's stronger than even wealth. So we do want to remember that also with Proverbs. Sometimes we're going to have to take a little bit of an extra step before we can see how to apply it. Okay, we're out of time for today, but we've looked at six of the seven genres. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at prophecy as well as talk about discerning figurative language. All right, let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the poetry that you've put in the Bible. Not only is it beautiful and vivid, God, but very instructive. And thank you for making it memorable for us. I pray, Lord, that we would remember it and that we would apply it. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of the service today and empower uh, the pastor as he gets ready to teach and the and empower us as singers and those who are leading us in worship. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless the food as we refresh ourselves now. I pray this in your name. Amen.